Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to episode 22 of Creativity School. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. If I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm listening to my books on Audible. So if you want to keep the feeling of inspiration and good juju going after you listen to an episode of this show, I highly recommend listening to a book on Audible, and I'm going to recommend Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic. The message of that book goes hand in hand with the message of this podcast, and I know you will love it. So if you want to get started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial that you can cancel at any time, head over to creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. That's creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. And if you use my link to sign up, you'll be supporting the show directly. I hope you like it as much as I do. I hope you all had an amazing week. I spent almost the entire week in Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas City, Kansas. I was in Missouri basically this entire week on a photo shoot taking pictures of adorable dogs for an advertising agency and a pet health care brand out there. What's a pet health care brand? Well, let me tell you, that's like you know, like flea and tick medication, stuff like that. So I spent three days shooting for that. Lots of dogs, lots of people. You do what's called a tech scout the day before, which is when you show up to the location and basically scout out where all the locations are that you're going to be shooting and figure out what kind of lighting you need and find all the setups that you're going to use the next day when you actually start shooting. And that just keeps the day rolling much, much smoother. And these days are intense. You know, I'm getting on set at eight in the morning and that's when you get breakfast. And then we start setting up all the lights and start shooting by nine. And then I'm pretty much shooting straight all day with the exception of a short break for lunch until about 5.30. And I did that three days in a row. That is so exhausting. (laughs) It's really tiring and I'm contorting my body into all kinds of positions, trying, trying to get the shots that I need. But it was great. So that was really fun exhausting but fun. Uh, I experienced my first tornado warning, which was actually pretty scary. Luckily, nothing happened. Everything was okay. And uh, I just flew in yesterday, Saturday, got into LA around 11 in the morning. I was up since four in the morning and then just jumped right into mom mode Um, taking my son to t-ball and today spending the day with my family having what we call family time. So basically I'm telling you all this because it's nine o'clock on Sunday and I'm recording this in the dark under his bed. He's got a like a loft bed. So I'm under his bed in the dark recording this intro while he's sleeping above me because it sounds really good in here and my husband's in our room sleeping. So this is like the most last minute I've ever recorded an intro before. I hate doing things last minute like this, but I literally had no time until right now. So the show must go on though, right? And um, today's episode is so good. So I'm just going to jump right into it. So as soon as I'm done this, I can go watch Ali Wong's new movie, Always Be My Maybe, and uh, get this wild Sunday night started. So this week's episode is with my very good friend, Lorenz Sala, and it's all about loving yourself even when people tell you you suck. And this topic of loving yourself has come up a couple times on the show already. And, you know, I used to think the phrase love yourself was honestly just the most cheesy, cliche, basic B mantra in the world. And I've been on this journey of being a creative entrepreneur and artist now for since 2008. So that's 11 years. And I didn't even really start this journey of loving myself until recently. And man, I can tell you that it is a really essential part of your creative journey. 
loving yourself. It really is. It's it's maybe one of the most important parts of your creative journey. And this is why, because the creative path isn't always the easy path. Just because you're doing something you love doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, I think it can be a lot harder because there is so much more skin in the game. The fails, the losses, the obstacles, all of that, it just feels way more personal. And the rejection and the criticism and people not supporting you, all of that, it is so much more personal. And in order to be able to create your best work possible and get your best work out in the world, and in order to be able to keep going on this path, even when it gets really, really hard, I think the best way to do that is to love yourself, really. It's really like your superpower. And my guest today, Loren Sala, is here to talk all about this and so much more. But Loren is one of my good friends and she is so multi-talented. She is a writer for digital content for places like BuzzFeed and Spotify. She's written personal essays and articles for Bustle and Good Magazine. She is an incredible copywriter and has written commercials for companies like Beats by Dre, DirecTV, Vitamin Water, eHarmony. And she's the author of two incredible children's books. So she's on today. We're going to talk about all the things. There's so many things to talk to her about that I kind of feel like she needs to come back on. But on today's episode, not only are we going to talk about, you know, how to love yourself and what does that look like in practice on a day-to-day basis when you are in the throes of trying to make a living from your creative work. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis and how do you do that? And then she also talks to us about children's books, which I don't know about you guys, but I want to write a children's book. I think everybody at some point wants to write a children's book. And Loren tells us the secrets of how to get into the world of children's publishing, how she got her literary agent, and how she even got her first book deal in the first place. Her first book was called You Made Me a Mother. It's one of my favorite picture books that I have. Makes me cry when I read it. I think it's an instant classic. And she has a new book coming out in a few weeks, just in time for Father's Day, called You Made Me a Dad. Again, this book is so good made me cry. And I think it's just an instant classic for books about dads. It's available at all bookstores. You can pick it up on Amazon and it is the perfect Father's Day gift. So she's going to talk to us all about the world of children's books. But like I said, we talk about all the things because we get into things like dealing with the sting of rejection and how loving yourself can help with that. And we talk about knowing what feedback and critiques to take from people and what to just flat out ignore. And we talk about the three essential parts of the creative process that highly creative people tend to embrace And lastly, we talk about something that I think is really important, and it's this feeling of feeling like you're a total failure because you can't make a living full time with your creative work. I think this is something that a lot of us feel, that we're not legit, that we're failures if 100% of our income isn't coming from our creative passion projects. And we're going to talk about all of that. I loved this conversation with Loren. She is so delightful. And I hope you like this conversation with her as much as I did. Hi, Loren. Thank you so much for joining me on my show today. Thank you for having me. I love your show. (laughs) Oh, my God. I am so excited to have you on. Thank you, by the way, for loving my show. You are really one of the most creative people that I know. (gasps) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Not just saying it, Carl. We go way back. We started working together like in 2007. Yeah, I think that's when I worked at that place. Yeah. We can say the name. It's not like Voldemort. (laughs) 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 We met working at Deutsch, which is a very, very large advertising agency here in Los Angeles. Yeah, we worked in cubicles kind of close to each other. We did. And you are on today on my show as a writer. But when I knew you back then, you were an art director. Yes. And that is something we should talk about because I always wanted to be a writer. And that is like <laughs> bonkers. So we worked together at Deutsch. I ended up quitting to do my own thing. And, you know, thanks to Facebook, I've been able to keep my little stalker eye on you and keep, just watch all the incredible stuff you've been doing, especially just in the world of writing, which I've always been like, 
wait a minute, she was an art director. How is she doing all this? So I'm super excited to get into that. But just to introduce you to my listeners, I just want everyone to know you are a writer. You are the author of two of some of the most amazing children's books I've ever read. And I am not just saying that because I know you. The first one you did was called You Made Me a Mother. That came out when? 2016. So I describe the book to people as instant classic. If you liked that book, I'll love you forever. My baby, you'll be. Is that what that book is called? Yeah, but that's like really depressing. (laughs) It is is so depressing. So this book is like creepy and kind of depressing. No, seriously, but why does the lady use her ladder to get into her son's house in that book? I don't get it. Because mothers can never, ever let go of their sons. (laughs) But it is good. It is good. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Keep telling me how great my book is. It's a good book. I will keep telling you how awesome your book is. I don't mean your book is creepy like that book or weird. But I think that book, I feel like, always comes up as being like, the book that represents motherhood. It's the book that makes people cry. It's the book that you give away at baby showers. And I really feel like your book, You Made Me a Mother, is an instant modern classic because it fulfills all of that without being super creepy and having (laughs) (laughs) the mom stop the the son until adulthood. So you made made me a mother. And then recently, just last week, right, your next book came out. Yeah. You Made Me a Dad. You Made Me a Dad. And that book is so good. I already bought it for my husband's Father's Day gift. Surprise, Vin, if you're listening. (laughs) But again, very similar. It's the story about fatherhood and the journey you take the reader on about parenthood and how sweet it is. And I don't know, it's not like saccharine. It's just so real and authentic. So really, truly, not just saying this, your books are two of my most favorite, cherished children's books ever. Thank you. That's just like so so cool. Like I knew you as an art director and now here you are as an amazing children's book author. And then, I don't know, I mean, like you're still writing for the ad industry, right? Yeah, but I've definitely taken a different take on it. Now I run my own business and I have my own clients. So it's not like I... I'm stuck in a cubicle anymore, like in working till 1 a.m. and bitching about my life every day. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know you started your own business. That's really cool. And then you also write for Good Magazine, Bustle, Tiny Buddha. Yeah. I write personal essays and I help other people write their own personal essays too. That's where my passion is. I mean, I love picture books, but I really love helping people write about their truth well, I just like making people cry in all forms. So it could be any any way. <laughs> I'm not done yet. You still do more cool stuff. You started something. It's a Hollywood stage show called Taboo Tales. Can you tell us about that really quick? Yes. So it's a storytelling show. It came about, let's just get deep here. My dad killed himself when I was 16. I didn't want to talk about it for 12 years. I held it deep, deep, deep inside. And then when I finally started writing about it, I realized it feels so much better to just be out and all the shame I had around my dad's story just kind of dissipated once I started writing and getting all the details out onto paper. So after doing that for years and writing personal essays about that, I wanted to help other people do the same thing and feel free. So I helped them write their essays and then they tell it on stage to 100 people and then hopefully they feel free too. So far, so good. First of all, I knew a little bit about your father, and I didn't realize that he committed suicide when you were so young. I mean, I just feel like that connects so many dots for me, just to know where your desire for writing and truth-telling comes from. It comes from such a deep, vulnerable, painful place that you've been able to transform into healing. So that's really amazing. I never knew that. Yeah. And then with Taboo Tales... I got to see a show. It's such a fun experience. And how do other people feel after they've worked with you on that? Great. I think we all have something that we're holding inside. And people are always telling me, oh, I don't know. I don't know what mine would be. They always say, you know, like, I don't do anything bad. I just like pee in the shower or whatever. But everyone really does have something. It's something that they wouldn't want to tell other people. It's just like this piece of shame. So Once you just let it out, it's such a release. So, I mean, I help people not only let it out, but I also help them make it into funny. It's like a comedy piece because real life is just funny. You just got to find the humor in it. So, yeah, I think they feel great. (laughs) I've gotten some good reviews. I like to see a lot of times people start with me and then they go on to tell their stories on lots of different stages because it feels so good. 
This topic comes up a lot on the show about creativity being a form of self-help and it's extremely healing. And so that's really cool that you're facilitating that not just for yourself, but for the people that are performing at your shows and writing. And writing is so cathartic. It totally is. I know. When did you start <laughs> writing about your experience with everything happening with your father? Actually, I quit advertising when in 2008, the very end of the year. I was so burnt out and I felt so depressed and I knew something needed to change. So I took a year off and I traveled the world and I just wrote every day. I just decided like no drinking, no sex, nothing, just like me being present with the world. And so I went all over the world and just wrote every day, every day. And towards the end of that, I started writing about all the things that were inside of me. And I posted one thing about my dad on my blog at the time. And then I got such a good response that I was just blown away. And I was like, oh my God, because people were like, me too. I have the same story. People I even knew. They were wow. like, well, my dad killed himself too. My dad, this, this too. So I just like found a tribe immediately after posting that. And I was like, oh, there's something to this, man. This is so cool. Okay. So you were not writing. You working in art directing or an ad agency as an art director. You quit because you were burned out. And then through this travel is when you started tapping into your writing. Well, I was always writing, but not personal essays. I was actually... <laughs> When we were working together, I was secretly writing this book. I would stay till all hours of the night at Deutsch writing this dumb book about... <laughs> I went on like 50 dates with 50 guys that weren't my type, and I was writing that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was not very deep writing. It was just like, you know, mostly Funny. complaining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was always writing. And then when I applied to go to advertising school, the head mistress lady or whatever admissions person, whatever that's called. <laughs> Mystery. <laughs> I know. That's so sexist. The admissions lady was like, oh, your ideas are really visual. You should be an art director. And having no backbone, I was like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. And so that's how I became an art director. But I was so horrible at it. And I don't know. I'm glad that only lasted five years or so, I think. And then you go on this journey and you start writing. You share this extremely vulnerable piece. And then how did people, first of all, come across that? Well, I had this blog and I was blogging. It was kind of when blogs were cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like 2009, I met all these blogger people. I mean, I'd been traveling the whole time. So people were reading about going to India and what happened in Laos and all this stuff. So I already had people reading. It's still up. It's humansarefunny.com. I think I might have put it on Facebook. I don't know. But I just immediately got a great response. I'm curious. Okay, you're writing about your travels and then all of a sudden you're writing about this very, very, very deeply personal thing. How did you feel putting it out? Was that scary? Oh, terrified. Totally. Yeah. Terrified. How did you like actually press the button to say published <laughs> writing a piece like that? I don't know because it was something I really like buried deep inside of me for 12 years. Yeah, to publish it was so scary. And I think it was easier because I was I probably, where was I? I remember being like in Malaysia or something. It was far away. So I think I felt like, well, if it goes bad, I never have to see anybody again anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. I think that's amazing because I think, first of all, being that vulnerable to actually write something like that is really, really scary. And then pressing publish and making it public for people to consume is even scarier. So that's why I was just curious about what that process for you was like, because I know how scary that is. And I think most people can't get over that hump. And what I find so cool is that you did it and that it's allowed this other journey to unfold in front of you. And you who knows what would have happened if you had never done that? You know what I mean? Like, I, I know, love that you right? jumped and did it. And you know what's weird is that we're kind of like the inverse of each other because I started at school as a writer. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be a copywriter and my expression was writing, you know, and my father passed away when I was 13 and I buried so much of that pain inside of me and it really was manifesting through my writing. So all through college, I was writing pieces about him. I was writing pieces on my identity. I went to a spoken word event when I was in college and like I stood up oh my like, in the audience and performed <laughs> a piece. Like when I think about it now, I'm like, how the heck did I do that? But the reason why I say this is because now, you know, years later, writing is not my medium. And when I go back and read what I used to write, like I'm shocked at how vulnerable I was. And it, it almost makes me feel embarrassed. 
I can't believe I used to share this with people. Like it's so scary and vulnerable. And so I just relate to what you're saying so much and admire so much that you rewrote that and shared that. Because really, like we talk about this on the show all the time, where like we just have to get out of our own way and do the things that we know we have to do, even though it scares the crap out of us. Yes. But I'm so interested in what motivated you to get up in college and do that stuff. I mean, that's so great. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was really my expression. My first expression was music. So I have been into piano since kindergarten and the clarinet since fourth grade. And so music for me was my primary emotional expression. I could play my feelings out. And then writing was just this like very natural extension of that. I think I've always been visual. I've always loved photography. But what I didn't really have at the time through the visual stuff was just the way to have your emotions pour out. Yeah. You know, I think I've learned how to do that now as a photographer. I put a lot more emotional depth into my work, but just the writing, it feels liberating. Like we started this saying, it's so cathartic. Mm -hmm. There is something so cathartic about putting your feelings out in writing. Yeah. Do you think that you did most of your grieving that way then? That's a really good question. Gosh, I love that you're interviewing me because most people don't do that. (laughs) Most people don't do that. I think I was able to process my memory of him through that because I had just turned 13. So I was barely a teenager. And so I still looked at my dad through the eyes of a child. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so as I got older, especially into college, a lot of my writing was about being able to process looking at him through the eyes of an adult. Yeah, it's so different, isn't it? hindsight, it's so different. It's so different. So grieving, no, I did not ever learn how to grieve, actually. I'm (laughs) Korean. We don't have emotions, really, in Korean (laughs) families. And yeah, no, that's something that, you know, it's for a later episode. I did that as an (laughs) adult. But yeah, yeah. So anyway... And you had just said, too, that you like it when people cry when they read your work. Yes. I like, well, like you said, getting any emotion out, whether it's through writing or listening, it's freeing. And I just like making people feel. And I love feeling, too. I love crying. Yeah, any type of emotion is just my favorite thing. (laughs) My husband's like, stop talking about death. Can we talk about something else? (laughs) I'm just like, but listen to this. (laughs) I just love it. (laughs) What does that mean, stop talking about death? What do you talk about? Oh, I just share stories. I also lead grief workshops, and I'm volunteering at this suicide survivors group right now. So I come home and I tell my husband all about it and who's shared what and how this person died. I just feel like experience, I don't know if you feel this way, but experiencing a death at such a young age, I guess it's just like normal for me to talk about it. So I have helped a million friends, not a million, all my friends whose dads have died, I've helped them through it. It's a topic that I'm not scared of. So I love talking about it. I love crying about it. And yeah, my husband is just like, come on. Can we watch a comedy? Like, I'm just like, let's watch Precious or whatever. And he's like, no. Well, I have two questions for you. Have you experienced any deaths since your father's death when you were 16? Yes. Mm -hmm. Was it recently or? My husband's mom died and we were right by her side. That was about two years ago. Wow. But right before I left on that trip around the world, my roommate's brother killed himself and she was not strong enough to ID the body. So I had to do it. Oh my God. Yeah. All these experiences I've just kind of hardened or just kind of accepted the fact that we're all going to die really. And it's not as scary to me as it is to the main population, I think. Yeah. Wow. I asked that question because I was wondering if you were able to move through those experiences in a different way because of all the work you've done. And it sounds like, yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I even wanted to be like a hospice person at some point, but maybe later. (laughs) My dog just died two months ago, and that was the first death I have experienced since my father passed away. And it was really interesting to go through the process of grief, and I still am, but it was so different than what I went through with my dad, because with my dad... It was like, stuff it all down and just don't feel it. Yeah, that's really tough at 13. You just don't have any skills at all. Zero skills. You nailed it on the head. I had zero skills. You know, I'd go to church and everyone be like, don't cry, don't cry. I was told don't cry. So that was what I was taught. Don't cry. And I think that this is a relevant topic, I think, to creativity because I think creativity is allowing everything you feel to be processed and to move through you into your work, like channel that out. 
And experiencing my dog's death, which, you know, it's so funny when I say that my dog died. Like, I don't feel like that really fully expresses what that was. Like, she was like my soulmate. She was this incredibly deep relationship that I had while she was here, unlike any other experience I've had with anyone or anything. And, you know, this time it was different because rather than stuffing it all down and telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, I did the complete opposite. And I allowed that energy and that emotion to come through me. And what I experienced was feeling emotions that are so deeply uncomfortable that most of us do not want to feel it. And I think that's why we're so afraid of yeah. death, mm-hmm. right? So do you feel like, you know, with your creativity, it feels like it's something that you're allowing to come forth out of you? Like it's like an energy coming out of you? I think so. Yeah. I have never thought about it like that, but yeah, it's definitely something that you can't control. Just like, it's just there and you got to get it out. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it feels for me. I was curious how it felt for you. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting to me, by the way, Loren, is that we were talking once and you had shared with me that there was a time in your life when you had zero self-esteem. And I was so shocked by that because you don't strike me as somebody who had zero self-worth, zero self-esteem. You're out there killing it, making such cool stuff. You are so strong. Even in your vulnerability, you're strong. Can you share with us about this journey that you've been on? Because it surprised me so much when you told me. Well, I think everybody, this is my like, this is my theory of life. (laughs) Everybody at some point in their life learns some kind of misbelief about themselves and then they spend the rest of their life trying to prove it wrong. I think that's what we do on earth. I don't know. But at some point I learned that I wasn't good enough. My family was weird. I mean, my dad, you know, was obviously depressed when I was younger. And then he was gay, which I totally support. But at the time, I just felt like I had such a different family. Yeah, I just felt flawed and different than everybody. And I think a lot of people, whatever their situation is, most people feel different from everybody. But I just didn't have the support to talk about that and realize that that's okay. And so I just felt like just a weirdo, not good enough. Like everybody else was on a pedestal. So then I just had no self-esteem. I wanted to only live my life to prove myself to others. And so I like put my needs totally last, you know, like would stay up all night baking cookies for the football players. So they would all like me and just things that were just totally unnecessary. But I wanted to prove that I was just as good as everybody else. I mean, I'm still dealing with it. I still have thoughts that come up that are like, oh, you shouldn't send this to your agent. She's going to hate it. She likes all of her other authors better, things like that. And I just have to parent myself and tell myself that that's not true. And, you know, I'm good enough and all that stuff. It's just a lifelong process that I'm continuously working on. (laughs) When did that shift happen where you realized, okay, this is not good for me to be constantly be trying to please other people so that I can fuel my self-worth through that. I think on that trip abroad, I finally started kind of thinking about what I actually wanted and my needs. And then just like, so that's not that long ago. I've only been awake or whatever since 2009. I mean, 10 years I've been working on this. So I feel like I started my life then, really. And how did you start doing that? Because I think that a lot of people relate to what you're saying, where they feel like they're not good enough, they don't believe in themselves or their abilities. So what was it that you did to really start believing in yourself and getting that strong about yourself and finding your voice? Oh my God, what haven't I done? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, tell us everything. (laughs) Well, I've done a couple of those silent 11-day silent meditation retreats, which are really helpful because they only magnify what's in your head. So you just have to listen to your thoughts for 11 days straight. (laughs) And Mm. that gets you really clear on like how mean you are to yourself. I've gone to tons of therapists. I got my master's in spiritual psychology. What's spiritual psychology? That sounds interesting. It's like psychology. (laughs) But the belief is that everything on earth is a lesson. Instead of like a tragedy happening, it's really like something that happened to teach something else. The spiritual part is that we're here on earth to learn a lesson. And if we don't learn it, the same problems are going to be coming up over and over again until we do learn it. So you better work on yourself or it's just going to be constantly hit with the same So that was a two-year program and it makes you look at all your stuff and you have to look at your life and all the things that you believe about yourself. It was intense, but it was really helpful. Feel like a different person after that program. So much so 
then my husband ended up doing it too. He was like, wow, you're so different. I'm going to do it as well. I kind of want to do it right now. I'm like, this, <laughs> this sounds amazing. I guess I'm trying to figure out, okay, like here's Loren, very low self-esteem and self-worth on one side. Here's Loren on the other side who nobody's perfect, right? But you've learned so much and you're so much stronger and you've done all these different things to sort of help you get there. But how does somebody turn a belief like I am not good enough to do this, flip that into then start putting things out into the world so fearlessly? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I'm trying to figure out like how does that start shifting? What is the thing and what did it look like for you? Basically for writing, like I couldn't stop doing it. I just like, I'm going to do it no matter what. So I had to believe in myself somewhere deep, deep, deep down inside. The part about art and getting paid for art is that someone else has to like it, which sucks. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I believed in myself enough to wanting to be doing it and liking what I was doing, but I just had to get up the nerve to send it out to people who would like it. And then be okay with the rejection. Even though I hated advertising, that really helped because it taught me to take a lot of rejection. I mean, don't you remember getting rejected so many times there? It was like a good practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was constant. You lose more than you win in advertising. And even when you win, you still lose because then the client craps all over your idea. <laughs> and then it's not, it's like a sliver of the idea that you kind of had to start with, right? Yeah. And so I think that got me used to it. And just like, this sounds so cheesy, but I had to figure out a way to love myself, even if someone was going to tell me I suck. So that was just like a lot of self-talk. Okay. So I think you nailed two things here that I want to call out. Number one is that you started the journey to love yourself, which I used to think that sounded like <laughs> such cheesy, <laughs> basic B mantra crap. Totally. Right. And I'm with you. And I've talked about this on the show before, too. Like, you need to love yourself and be so grounded in loving yourself that it does not matter if other people don't like what you make because you like it and you love yourself. Like, I feel like that's like your superhero shield from making other people's words about you, like, make you crumple. Yeah. And want to yeah. be in a ball and cry. Totally. How did you start doing that? <laughs> How did you start shifting from being like, okay, this is major basic B, dumb crap to no, this is the truth? Well, I had this sponsor in a 12-step program, and she helped me through this a lot. And what she tells me is, you put your hand on your chest, and you take a minute, and you just talk to yourself as if you are a loving parent. Mm. I literally do this. So like even yesterday, I got a rejection. It was so annoying. It was like this thing. <laughs> I don't even care about it. It was from more of a copywriting person. So it was like, you know, an advertising thing. It just stung and I had to sit down with my hand on my chest and be like, I love you. You are a beautiful person. You, <laughs> it's kind of like that guy on uh, Saturday Night Live. I, <laughs> you're good enough. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Who cares if these people like you? You never are going to see them again. You have a great family. You're funny. You are sweet. You are so loving. Like, I truly have to tell myself that. And then like that pain of fear of like, oh my God, they're going to think I'm so bad. Oh my God, they're going to hate me. That starts to go away. So is that what's called reparenting? I guess so. Yeah. Because I heard you mention it earlier and I was like, what is that? So it's like you're being your own parent that you kind of wish you could have had if you didn't have a parent talk to you that exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. I've talked about that very thing on my podcast <laughs> in past episodes where it's, you know, be proud of yourself, talk to yourself kindly and acknowledge the things that you did great. And even if things go wrong, that's okay too. And be your best cheerleader. So I love this technique of putting your hand on your heart and really being kind to yourself. And I think that's the second thing is like you have to have the awareness that you're speaking mean to yourself at all. Like catch yourself when you're doing it and stop it. That's the thing. Our first thought is usually negative. It's usually something bad. So every first thought you have to catch, I think. And that takes practice. Yeah, yeah, it takes practice. It's an awareness. And then I think as with everything, as with all good things, it takes baby steps. Yes. So, you know, it's a practice. It's a daily practice. You have to keep doing it. And I think at some point, 
it gets easier. Like I think maybe in the beginning, it feels almost like you're forcing yourself to do it. And then as time goes on, it's going to feel a little bit more natural, even though you always have to do it. Like I still always have to do this for myself, but it doesn't feel as like, oh my God, this is so stupid. Am I in an SNL yeah. sketch right now? <laughs> it just sounds, because you don't actually <laughs> say the words out loud. I mean, like, yeah. it doesn't sound bad when you're doing it to yourself. It just sounds bad when you're telling someone else about it. <laughs> And you know what? I think it's not just the words. It's the feeling you feel. It's the feeling, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's you're embodying the feeling it feels like to have someone say that to you, that it's okay, that you're wonderful. And uh, I think it takes your body out of a state of like tension. Yeah. And like you can relax a it little does. bit. You're right. I like keep doing it because my anxiety is all in my stomach. So I can feel when my stomach finally relaxes. And it usually does take mm. a while. <laughs> like just sitting there and waiting. And then it's like, ah, oh, okay, I can just exhale. That's such a great technique. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. It's great too. Cause it's like, sometimes people think, oh, I have to put aside all this time to meditate. And if they don't want to do it, cause they just think of it as something on the to-do list, but that you can do anytime you just feel like, <laughs> so it's like, you don't yes. have to plan it, you know? Yes, you do it in the moment. So you guys listening, let's try practicing this. The next time you feel like you're going to talk to yourself in a really, really bad way, let's just remember this conversation, okay? Just stop it and then just try to talk to yourself in that really loving, kind voice, like a parent, like a nice parent who loves you and wants the best for you. So, okay, I want to know more about how you got into writing your amazing children's books. Well, that's so strange because it's not the normal route. I basically wrote a commercial that sort of went viral and then... Not sort of, like it crazy went viral. <laughs> yes, it went viral and then... What was the commercial? Let's tell everybody what the commercial was. called was. You Made Me a Mom or You Made Me a Mother. <laughs> it was for Boba Baby Carriers. It was about... Well, it's ex- almost what ended up being printed in the book, but it's a little different. It got like 400,000 shares on Facebook or something. HarperCollins called the company Boba and they were like, let's make a book. And Boba was like, sure, let's make a deal. And then this is kind of one of the points in my life where I was like, wait a minute, I need to stand up for myself because they were just like, hey, guess what? A book's going to come out with your name on it. Who said that? Boba? Boba said that to you? And I was like, wait a minute, what? Can I get some information about this? (laughs) Wow. Then they sent me the contract and it was basically like signing away all my rights. And I was just like, hold on, this doesn't sound right. So I think. If it had been like five years prior, I would have been like, well, Boba's a company and they know a lot more than I do and they're big and they're older and I don't know anything. I'm just this little writer. I don't know. But so this is when I started. I was like, no, I wrote that and I never signed away my rights for that. I own that and I'm going to get paid for this book. It's going to be mine. And so, yeah, I had to get a lawyer. I had to tell Harper Collins and Boba would be so happy about me talking about this. But I mean, they didn't realize what was the deal. They just were like, oh, cool. It's not like they did anything wrong. They were just kind of going with what the assumptions were. Everyone just assumed as things without checking in with me or asking me anything. So I had to stand up for myself and it was great. And it was like one of the first times and it worked out because then it got me a book deal. And then immediately I built up enough confidence to be like, well, if you like this book, what about if I wrote a dad book? And so I sold that. So I was just like, It was basically my whole picture book career began with me standing up for myself. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I always wondered actually about how this happened just because I knew that book came from a commercial that you wrote and you were a freelancer. Yeah, but had it been at Deutsch, it would have had no rights because they make you sign that. Exactly. (laughs) That's what I wanted to. So for those listening, you know, typically when you are an employee, you sign something saying that any ideas or products or things that you generate as an employee of this place, the employer owns the rights to it. Right. Right. And so I wondered about that because you wrote this crazy, amazing commercial that went viral. And now you have a book that's almost, it's not entirely word for word, but it's basically like the picture book version of the commercial, right? And so I always wondered about that. And it's because you were a freelancer that you were able to then get the rights to it. It wasn't through an agency. It was such a under the table thing where the director needed a script. So he just was like, hey, can you write this real quick? So nothing was signed. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I know I got really lucky. (laughs) 
I love that you say, you know, had that happened five years earlier, you probably just would have been like, okay, and just gone along with what everyone was saying for you. And I love that five years later, this happens and you are tapping into your own strength and confidence and being like, heck no, no, I wrote this. This is mine. Yeah. So that's amazing. Thank you. Great job. And then you were like, hey, guys, I have another idea for a book. (laughs) Yeah. And then I was like, wait, maybe I should get an agent. (laughs) And so I emailed an agent. I was able to just like each step of the way took me a lot of kind of like working my way up to it where, you know, taking a lot of breaths, telling myself I can do it (laughs) because I was just scared of agents too. I was like, oh, these people are so, you know, I put everyone on a pedestal. And then I had this even strange, I was scared of my agent for a while too, because I was like, she knows so much more than me. And now I'm like, wait, what if I just treat her as another person? And I sent her a manuscript recently and she was like, let's sell it. And she sold it. So now I have another book coming out. It's just all about standing up for myself every single time, which is so hard to do, but it's worth it. (laughs) Oh, it's so hard to do. I love that you just said you just looked at her like she was any other person versus putting her up on a pedestal and being scared of her. Because I relate to that so much. Like I kind of like felt like that, I think, a little bit with my editor. Oh, the picture book editor? Yeah, my two photo books that I have. So, you know, in the beginning, I felt a little bit like I couldn't stand up for myself, like very, very, very early on. And then I realized, wait, if I don't stand up for this work, nobody will. And this book will come out as somebody else's vision and not mine. And I have such a strong viewpoint for how I think this needs to go. I have to stand up for myself. And like you, I don't think I could have done that if this book had happened any earlier in my career, because I think I would have had her too high up on a pedestal and wouldn't have wanted to ruffle feathers. I wouldn't have wanted to be the difficult author. Right? Like, who cares? Like, first of all, oh, right? We do so many things because we want people to like us. It's so annoying. <laughs> yes. I wanted her to like yeah. me so bad. I think in the past, I probably just would have valued her liking me more and me not ruffling feathers than me stand up for myself. And I'm so glad I did. And what I think is interesting too is that I think for a lot of people, they respect people standing I up know. for themselves. And wait, so what happened when you stood up for yourself? Did she hate you? She just said, <laughs> Okay. I know, right? <laughs> well, well, you know what? We had one phone call. Girl, she was not happy. Like, she just was very curt and just very cold and was not happy. And I remember I called my husband after and I was like, and guys, this happened in like, what, 2015, 2016? I called my husband and I was like, she hates me. She hates me. <laughs> he was like, yeah, but did you get what you wanted? Is your book going to be the way you want it? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, then that's all that matters. And I was like, you're so right. You're so right. <laughs> I know. It really is all that matters. And then did you use her for the second book too? I did. And you know what? (laughs) It all worked out. I feel like she really respects my opinions. Yeah. Because I'm not wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like just when you know and feel something so deeply and you're going to stand up for it and fight for it and then it ends up actually making the book better. They trust you. Yeah. So then by the second book, I'm like sending back copy that I'm re-editing <laughs> for them. And I'm just like, whatever, I think it needs to be written this way. And she's just like, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. See, I know. It's just like, for some reason, we put people on pedestals and they are just people. Yes. Totally. Okay. You kind of glossed over the fact that you went and got yourself a literary agent, but how did that happen? You just sent out cold emails to people? So many people ask me every day how to become a picture book author. So I'll tell you (laughs) right here. (laughs) There is an organization called SCBWI. It's a horrible name because it's so long. It's Society of Children's Books, Writers, and Illustrators.org, SCBWI.org. And they have a conference every year in New York and LA. And I went to the one in LA because I did the first contract on my own for the mom book. And it was really intimidating. And I like read through all the legalese and whatever. And I had a lawyer look at it, but she was like a student lawyer because <laughs> mm. I was too cheap to get a, an expensive one, which is a bad, don't ever do that. <laughs> it's always splurge on a lawyer. That's my advice. Yeah. So I took this course from this agent and I just basically scoured the whole conference for agents that I liked. And this one was teaching a course on how to deal with your contracts. And she was so badass. I was like, I would never want to fuck with this lady. She was just like such a boss, you know, like, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. And she was pregnant. 
as soon as I got back from the conference, I was like, I need someone to help me with my contract for this dad book. It's for pregnant people. It's for new babies. What do you think? And she was like, okay. And I like cried. I was so happy because, by the way, this should be said too. I have submitted manuscripts for many books to hundreds of agents in the past. So I think one reason I was so scared of agents is is because so many have told me no so many times. (laughs) One time I got a rejection from an agent and she was like, here's a link to a place where you can take classes on how to tell a story. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, that was really, really hard rejection. She reached out because she saw the dad post on my blog. So she's like, write this memoir about your dad, send it to me. So I was obviously so excited about that, wrote the book in record time, was so happy to send it to her. I put my all in it. I dedicated, I think, a year to just like doing only that. And then I sent it to her, couldn't wait to hear back from her. And she was like, here's where you can go to learn how to tell a story. (laughs) Yeah. How did you not take that so personally and recover from that? Well, that one was really hard. Actually, (laughs) after that, I was like, you know what? I am going to quit writing. Loving myself. (laughs) I'm just going to, I am quitting writing. I am going to become a yoga teacher. So I did that and I took classes on like how to become a nutritionist. And then I got that book deal and I was like, the universe is telling me not to quit writing. I'm going to just go back to it. And so I've been trying to figure out a time, like rewrite that memoir. Now, like because of that response from that agent, I am for sure going to sell that memoir. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Success is the greatest revenge. I know. I can't wait. She's on my list. I keep her on my list. So I'm like, guess what? Another book deal's out. Here, check it out. (laughs) I love that. Okay. So you got your agent because you went to this event. Yes. And you met her there and then you pitched her, which previously you had pitched hundreds, you're saying, and got rejected. Uh Wow. It's totally a numbers game. You got to just keep getting your work out there without taking the rejection personally. It is a numbers game. You know, I've sent personal essays sometimes too and try to sell them and I get like, oh, she didn't like it. Oh, she didn't like it. And I just, I went to this networking thing and all these people were talking about how many essays they pitch. They pitch like 30 a month. I was like pitching one a month thinking, oh, no, it's a numbers game. You just, that if you want to sell an essay or a book or whatever, you just have to do it a lot. You just cannot stop. I think there's two things that I think are so foundational to highly creative people. Number one is they just keep getting their work out there because they realize it's a numbers game. And then you build that resilience. Your skin gets thicker. And it's just part of this game. If you want to be a creative person that makes money from what you do, it is a part of the game. It is the reality. So you have to just accept that and then do it. Yeah. Right? That's number Mm -hmm. one. Number two is that You cannot be afraid of failing because it is literally a part of the creative process. Whatever you make, nobody sells their first draft. Yeah. The first thing you put out is often not the best one and it's a process. And I think for very highly creative people I talk to, it's just so part of the process that you don't even talk about it. And then for people who are like more newbie creatives who want to get started into this, Failing is like the worst possible thing that can happen, you know, and you fail once and it's like the world is ending and you'd want to give up and never do it again. And I think we just have to realize that those two things, building up a thick skin and getting your work out there constantly and then facing rejection, that's just part of the game, right? And then failing, like the work you literally make isn't going to be perfect when you make it. And it's part of the process of being creative. And I think I would add too that another step is to actually take a look at yourself and see if the rejection or critique you're getting is useful. Because I think a lot of people are just like, oh, that, what a, she hated it. Well, whatever. But I mean, that lady did have a point. I didn't have a good arc in that manuscript. I mean, I just feel like, you know, instead of just like cutting them off and hating them forever, there is a time where you should need to look at yourself and change your work. Don't be afraid to just change it up a little bit if it's needed. You know what I mean? Like, don't fall in love with your first draft either. I love that. But now I want to talk more deeply about this because I think especially for newcomers to this path, I think you feel like when you get opinions from people, you have to implement them all when you're at the beginning. Like, how do you balance the feedback that you take and and incorporate and actually listen to versus feedback that you're like, I'm not doing that? I think it's just like a feeling in your bones. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, I just... 
sold a new manuscript. It's a bilingual book. It's so cute. It stars my daughter in the picture book. And the editor is someone I really trust. And I think she's really smart. And she made a bunch of notes on it. And I agreed with most of them, but some of them I just felt really strongly no. And so I stood up for myself and I took about 75% of the notes just because I felt that she made it better. But like, if you don't feel it makes it better, then you absolutely do not have to take it. Hmm. That's like a gut yeah, check. I think. Well, do you think so? What do you think? That's a really good question. For me, it is absolutely a gut thing. I know maybe because of working in advertising, maybe we've gotten good at this, like knowing when feedback is actually really good and some feedback is just really stupid. But for me, at the end of the day, I feel it in my bones. Yeah. And most of the time, for me, I don't listen to a lot of the feedback I get. But, oh, you know what it is? It's like you just said, who is the person telling you the feedback? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you trust them? Or do you know that they have a record of telling you good feedback that is trustworthy and actually makes the work better? I think putting work out for critique, like on Facebook, is the worst possible <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. I see people do that all the time. I'm like, don't, don't do it. Because... Like, no offense to your friend who works in a bank, but are they really, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like the most legit source of critique? I just think that that's a really dumb way to do it. It's like you said, it's like you have to make sure you really trust the person that's giving you the feedback and value them. So I think it's important to ask people who understands you. Because, oh, that's the other thing is that I think some people are just repressed creatives and they're going to be mean to you because they feel bad about themselves, right? So (laughs) it's just really important to like reach out to people you trust who are on your side and who want the best for you. I totally agree. Yeah. If you put it on social media, you're just going to get haters. (laughs) You are. You know, I put my podcast cover artwork on Facebook to get people's opinions. I put like three different versions of it and I never do that, Loren. I never, (laughs) ever design by committee like that. But there is this part of me that was like, well, the show's really not for me. It's for other people out there. So I do want to get a pulse on what people are gravitating towards. And, you know, I kind of just like, let me try doing this. And I got like, I don't know, 60 responses on it. They're all over the board, but there's definitely a clear winner. And you know what that whole exercise taught me? (laughs) to go with my gut because my gut was like the one that nobody liked. And I'm like, but that's the one I want. (laughs) And that's what I did. That's what I did. I like it. Well, thank you. That's not (laughs) what I posted. So I refined it a little bit and then ended up going with what I like. But at the end of the day, you know, get the feedback that is coming from people you trust. But then like you said too, like it's really about your gut. How does it feel? Like if you're implementing these changes, does it feel right to you? Because if it feels wrong to you, don't do it. Well, that's another thing. Because the finished product that's going to be out in the world, you can't be embarrassed of it. (laughs) You have to love it. Oh, that's a good point. So, you know, you just had a book launch last week of You Made Me a Dad. You Made Me a Dad, yeah. Like, what does that feel like for you to have your baby out in the world like that? It's weird because I have been looking at it for so long. It's like I've seen the cover a million times. I've poured over every inch of it, talked about the skin colors, the words, every single comma, you know, so to see it on a shelf, it almost, it looks weird. Like, wait, what's that? What's my old friend doing on a shelf? Like, it's so strange. Mm. And it's a little, you know, vulnerability because I feel vulnerable because it's now I'm open. The, basically the definition of vulnerable is open to attack. So I feel that, mm. you know, I'm totally open and anyone can spit in my face and tell me that it sucks or not like it or whatever. And I just have to stand there and take it. Actually, one of the reviews was, (laughs) they reviewed it and said the book, uh, the mom kind of disappears in the book and they were scared that what happened to the mom, like maybe she died. And I'm like, no, it's a book about dads. That's why it's, (laughs) (laughs) that's such dumb feedback. It was Kirkus, which is like a very, you want them, you know, you die for the Kirkus review. They like star your book and the mother book got a star and dad book didn't and So I'm here, I am open to all this stuff and it could be negative, but I'm just like, whatever, (laughs) it's fine. I just want people to love it and I want dads to feel special and I want kids to feel special and that's my goal. So I like that definition of vulnerability. How do you deal with people 
quote unquote attacking you like with that? I mean, do you just kind of like let it brush off your shoulder? Like what's that process like for you? Because I relate, by the way. I've gone through this twice with my books. (laughs) And as you were talking about like being attacked, I'm like, it's a book about moms and dads. Like what is there possibly – how could you attack something like that? But as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, but people do that to my work too and it's about dogs. (laughs) Like. (laughs) I know. How do you deal with that? I feel so old, but back in the day when we were kids, it was so much harder to write a comment or a bad review. So it's just, it goes so fast nowadays. And I think like what I said before with the self-parenting or with the getting used to it now, maybe I think if it had been the first book and I'd gotten a bad review, I might've been really sad or taken a day to get over it. But I just have been doing this technique and just loving myself regardless for a while now that I was just like, oh, well, like I'm next. Like I didn't care that this review came Good out. Good for you. I mean, I was sad for a second and then I laughed about it. <laughs> I was like, the mom disappeared. What? Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about money with you. But before we go there, since we're talking about your books, you said you're going to tell us the secrets of children's book publishing. And I feel like we didn't really get to talk about that. So what do you think are some things that people can do if they want to do a children's book? Because I think everybody wants to do a children's book, me included. Okay. Some things to do. One, well, there's kind of formula. If you want to do a character book, the formula is there's a character. He has a problem that you find out about in the very beginning. And he tries to solve it three different times. And finally, he figures out a clever way to solve it. That's it. That's the formula? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can make that abstract. It's Sometimes the formula is kind of like baked in that you can't even tell. Sometimes it's very obvious. But, you know, like look at the three little pigs. One built a house out of this. One built a house out of this. And then finally the one, they figured out how to kill the wolf. It's just usually like three things happen and then some clever thing wins, saves the day. So there's that. It should be under a thousand words, 32 pages, and you should run it by as many people as you can that you trust and respect. You can go and get like agents and editors to look at it at those conferences through scbwi.org. Is that the best way to do it, do you think, versus like researching online to see which publishers take unsolicited manuscripts? I think it's really important to not just write it yourself and send it in. I think you need Mm. to get a critique. I have a critique group that like looks at my stuff now before I send it in. It's just important. Are they a group of children's book writers or are they just, it's like a writer's critique group? They're all trying to be children's book writers. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, I feel like you need to be able to critique work through a very special different filter to look at children's books. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone wants to write one and because everyone with a kid wants to write one, they feel like, oh, I want to teach my kid something. There's just so many of them. So it's good to have a second opinion on the work. I'm going to join your group. I'm inviting myself. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) I'm going to crash your group. I mean, I think everyone can write one. I guess it just takes so much longer than you think. People reach out to me every day and they're like, I got this great idea, which is awesome. And then they just don't want to do the work because it takes a while. You have to like figure it's going to take three years. Wow. Three years. So what is the work? Is like you're writing the story and then just the constant showing it to people and revising it? Like what happens in those three years? Yes. It seems like it's so easy because it's under a thousand words. I was laughing because the manuscripts that I got rejected, those were 80,000 words each. And now... The finally, when I sold the book, it was 300 words. <laughs> it's like nothing. Wow. So it seems so easy, but because the word count is so low, you have to get a lot in. Yeah. Very, That's why it's hard. Yeah, so it's hard. And so you have to make sure every single word is tastefully chosen. There's like page yes. turns. Yeah. And then just editors and agents kind of know what topics are selling. You have to go through that. Wait, let's go. Hold on one second. So how do you know what topics are selling? Like, would you recommend to somebody before they started writing a book, kind of go out and see what the best sellers are? Or is it a bad way to start your children's book? I think so. There's definitely trends. Like right now, a trend is like weird, abstract characters. John Klassen is really popular right now. He's the one with the fish that just like forgot his hat. Do you know what I'm, Do you have that one? <laughs> Official. No. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> just look up John Klassen, K-L-A-S-S-E-N. 
that he's really good. I think you can read, there's so many blogs about children's books and you can just kind of see what's selling or find your favorite ones. But yeah, if you have a story that you want to tell, just write it. It, The first draft, like you said, is never going to sell. So just write it, think of it as the beginning and then keep refining it getting feedback and feedback and feedback, go through the agents. Then you have, once you sell it with an agent, then you got to sell it to an editor. And then the editor has to sell it to their publisher. And then the publisher has to find an illustrator for you. Then the illustrator takes minimum 18 months to draw it and color it. Then it has to be sent to China to be printed. Then it comes back. So yeah, three years. So three years. Okay, so that's from genesis of the story to being on a shelf at a store, three years. Yeah, minimum. (laughs) Wow. And do you think everybody has to find an agent in order for this to happen? No, like I said, for the mom book, I do not have an agent. But for the dad book, I did. And I have to tell you, it's so much better having someone in your court, like telling you what you should ask for on the contract. And But no, you totally do not need one. There are plenty of publishers that have open calls for things and they're looking for stuff. And if you can get in that way, just get in any way you can at first and then you can get an agent later if you want to, like I did. And then do you have any say in the illustrator? Yeah. They send you a couple options. I'm sure if I was like a famous, famous writer, they would be like, you pick. But <laughs> they were just basically <laughs> like, here's some options. Which one do you like? And then, you know, we have conversations about it. But I don't think I could reject someone and say like, for sure, no. Or I couldn't be like, oh... I actually want Grace to shoot this. Can you just make it? Can we be a photo book? They would be like, no. So I don't have that much say. Yet. Yet. Yes. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think that's really helpful. And it just kind of puts things into perspective because I think people, like you said, think writing a children's book is they so do. easy. Yeah. And it's not. It's not. <laughs> well, to get into money a little bit, where do I start? Because it's such a big topic. But what I want to talk to you specifically about is that I think a lot of people feel shame about having to take outside work to pay the bills. Like if you're not 100% making your income from children's books only, you're kind of like a failure. Right. What is your thought about all that? Oh, lots of thoughts about money. (laughs) I think that artists have to make money in as many ways as possible. And That's one of my downfalls is I have thought of myself as a failure because I'm not 100% making it as a children's book or not even that's my, or just as a writer that doesn't have to dip into copywriting. Yeah. I have thought of myself as a failure, but I try to catch myself because that doesn't acknowledge a lot of the work I do. We just have to make it in as many ways as possible. And that's totally okay. Yeah. It's just about finding that first thought that says, no, you're not an art, a true artist. And just like letting that thought go and redefining it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, like for me, commercial photography isn't necessarily my first love. You know, it's work. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's great about having other sources of income is that you can use the money that you make to then help fuel the things that you actually really love doing. It's like what they say about actresses and actors like, I forget the exact quote, but it's the idea like do the few blockbuster movies so that you could do the one passion project you really care about. Yeah, I think that's just how it works. It's just how it works. But we tell ourselves that we're such failures when we're not able to just make money doing 100% passion projects all the time. And that's just not reality, it's right? It's not reality, yeah. Yeah, because I think you had told me um, at one point 40% of your income comes from yeah, your book. which is great. Last year was amazing because I got that new book deal and whatever, and I have no idea what this year's going to be. But hopefully you know, slowly but surely, I will be able to change that. And one day it will come true that I'm only making money from my books. That happened to my, the illustrator I worked with for the first book, You Made Me a Mom. Now she has, I don't know, 80 books out. She's just killing it. She has a beautiful house that she claims, you know, was paid for by her her book characters. So it just took her a while. She didn't start until she was 35. She was a ballerina. What? Oh, she could be a great guest. She's amazing. So she was a ballerina and now she's got 80 books and she bought her house from the book yes. money. So you just... And I'm sure it took exactly, a long time. Long, oh gosh. You know what I was just reading? I watched Homecoming by Beyonce and there was a quote on there from Maya Angelou about how I can die happy now because I've done the work that I was meant to do. I was put on this earth to do. And I was like, man, I'm jealous of her. She just got to write poetry. She just, you know... <laughs> 
you know, she got paid to be a writer her whole life. Now she's happy. She can die happy. And so I was just like, why can't I be like Maya Angelou? <laughs> and then I looked it up. She was a sex worker before she was a writer. What? She had a lot of stuff to do before she found her passion. So we cannot judge ourselves if it takes us a while to get there. Wow. I'm so glad you shared that. Do you know when she started writing? I think it was also in her mid to late 30s. I think her first book came out, yeah, around mid to late 30s. She was like oh. a janitor. She did all these wow. things. And so, yeah, we're in the right place. We just have to trust. Oh, I love that. What do you think your creative journey has taught you about yourself? That I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> and it's okay if they <laughs> don't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you want people to remember this episode with you? Oh, God, that's a hard question. I want them to remember that they are just doing it and they're in it and it's okay. And everybody's just right where they're supposed to be. Even though that's so cheesy and such a cliche and I'm a writer and it should be better, but look, I'm not going to judge myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to love myself anyway. (laughs) I love that. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing everything you did today. And I'm just so thankful to know you and to watch as you blossom and grow and just keep putting awesome stuff out into the world. So thank you. Well, I feel the same way about you. And I just wanted to tell all your listeners, I don't know how they know. Do they know how inspiring you are too? I mean, you're always (laughs) the interviewer, but everyone who's listening, please know that Grace is killing it. She is also the most creative ever. And she's come a long way from when we were in those cubicles back at the Deutsch offices. (laughs) Wow, we both come such a long way. I'm so thankful to know you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.